Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Judge Business Debate. My name is Michael Kitson. I'm an economist here at Judge Business School in Cambridge. In this series, specialists from the Cambridge Judge Business School and the wider Cambridge community discuss and debate topical issues of business and management. In today's session, we are focusing on the future of the UK in a post-Brexit world. Britain left the EU on the 31st of January after 47 years of membership of the EU or of its predecessors. The UK is currently in a transition period to the 31st of December, and during this period the UK will remain in both the EU customs union and the single market. So there's much uncertainty concerning the UK's future relationship with Europe, and there's much uncertainty about how the UK will fare in the future. To discuss these topics, I can introduce my three guests today. John Gord is Chief Executive of the Cambridge Network. Dr. Mia Gray is University Senior Lecturer at the Department of Geography at Cambridge University and a Fellow of Girton College. Professor Jaideep Prabhu is Jawaharlal Nehru Professor of Indian Business and Enterprise and Director of the Centre for Indian and Global Business at the Judge Business School and is a Fellow of Clare College. So welcome to our three guests. And I should also add, as, as is normal with all our, all our uh, podcasts, uh, everybody here is speaking in a personal capacity. Uh, so we don't, not, not necessarily speaking on behalf of the institutions we represent, um, particularly those from the University of Cambridge. I don't know if it has any institutional views on anything because it allows us all to discuss what we want in a free and open spirit. Okay, so let, let's open this up, I mean, this, this um, really difficult question of Brexit. And I, and I am aware that still we're in the area of uncertainty and the area of speculation, so particularly until the end of this year. But perhaps we could kick off about what do you think the impact of Brexit will be on, on the British economy, um, take into account that we, we, their policy will change over the next few months. But other things being equal, what do you think the impact on Brexit will be, particularly I think, as we're moving towards a hard Brexit. Uh, Jaideep, perhaps you will kick off. Yeah, so you've clarified, you know, it's under the scenario of hard Brexit because, of course, one could paint different scenarios. If we assume that that's what Brexit is going to look like, that, you know, there's going to be divergence between uh, how Britain operates after uh, we leave the EU properly at the end of the year uh, and how the EU operates. So that is, we won't have access to the common market, or at least not easily. There'll be friction at the borders. There'll be, we may not be part of the customs union. If we have that kind of a hard Brexit, it's very hard to see how there could be any sort of positives in the short to medium uh, run. Um, there would have to be realignment of the UK's economy, which has over the last several decades been aligned towards the European Union and the European market towards other markets, uh, the US, uh, possibly developing emerging markets in Asia and Africa. And that's going to take time. So uh, I would say that at the very best, you're going to have uh, a downturn uh, in the economic fortunes over the next few years. And then possibly in the long term, if all goes well, things will return to where they were. But probably, you know, if you could do this experiment, <laughs> the UK may have been ahead, uh, you know, if it didn't leave the EU uh, down the road. So I think it's it, certainly in the short term, it's not going to be good. In the long term, who knows? So j just, just to pick up on that, you're talking about a slowdown in economic growth, not the, the so-called project fear that we're going to go into a major recession, just that growth will be slower than it otherwise would have been if we remained had a closer ties with the European Union. Is that the right? Yeah, and I would say, I mean, I think in material terms, it's going to affect people's lives. So if you have a business, it's going to create 
uh, friction. It's going to create costs. Um, you may lose uh, customers. You may lose suppliers. You're going to have to find new customers, new suppliers. And all that will translate into possibly higher prices or lack of uh, easy availability of things that you've taken for granted and possibly depressed income. So I think in very real terms, people on average, uh, their lives are going to be worse off in the short to medium term under a hard Brexit. Okay. John? Oh, I, I mirror those views of Jadeep, really. I think what has brought or been brought to businesses over the past couple of years is uncertainty. I think businesses over the last couple of decades have really seen the European market as their growth. They've focused on that. I think over the past couple of years, they've not necessarily known where we'll be and to what extent they should be you know, readjusting their target sites on opportunities outside of the European Union. So depending on what the terms are, if we see a material impact on their ability to deal with the European Union, I think you're exactly right. It'll take a while for them to readjust their, their sites and start to make those connections with the, the other opportunities around the world. Are things becoming um, less uncertain now with the election of a, the Boris Johnson government? It's got a significant majority. It's um, getting Brexit, Brexit done. Yes, I think, I, I think it's, a, it's a matter of degrees. I think yeah, the double uncertainty of not knowing where we'll be in terms of Brexit and how that will look afterwards has now been reduced to just one level of uncertainty, which is you know, what will the playing field be like when we come out at the end of the negotiations? Mia, are you, are you an optimist about Brexit? <laughs> I'm afraid not. No, <laughs> no I mean, I think um, all the issues that have already been raised are enormously important. And then, of course, there's other ones like uh, immigration and how, how particularly low-skilled immigration that we've been very dependent on from abroad will be structured and how that will play out not only in the economy in large, but also in regional economies because, you know, these are... The, the question about how Brexit plays out is very much a question of kind of um, city by city, region by region, rural areas versus cities that, you know, cities are really enormously dependent on trade with the EU, more so than, than kind of our rural economies. Um, so how that plays out, um, you know, we'll have a large rural urban split, the way in which northern economies um, uh, cope with both fewer EU migrants, but also um, questions about foreign direct investment, questions about um, uh, the restructuring of supply chains. You know, the, these are kind of regional questions as well. Th th those are an important range of issues you, you've raised there. If we just unpack them a little bit more. Um, on the immigration argument. If immigration does fall, I mean, one counter argument is that that will encourage firms to invest because they cannot employ relatively cheap labour and it may actually help some people who are on low wages because their wages will be pushed up. I mean, is there any positives about having a, perhaps, perhaps a fall in, in immigration if that there, does happen? There may be in the long run. I mean, again, kind of, um, I, I think um, the earlier question about, you know, short run versus long term kind of implications really becomes important with immigration. I think um, certainly if you look at kind of labor's um, or, or the part of labor that, that, that was relatively pro-Brexit, their ideas about how that might play out in kind of local labor markets would be an assumption that we could shape local labor markets, we could invest in education and skills training and retraining of people who are long-term unemployed. And in the long run, you know, you may see 
some of that happening. I think in the short run, it, it'll be quite a um, difficult transition. Um, we don't have kind of the education system, the skills training system in place. The um, local enterprise partnerships have not really functioned in the way that they um, might have functioned to, to kind of make that sort of transition easier. John, a view about immigration? Um, skilled, particularly skilled workers, presumably, particularly for the Cambridge area. Well, absolutely. Um, this is one instance I am happy to talk on behalf of the Cambridge Network and its members. Um, Cambridge has a fantastically diverse and cosmopolitan um, workforce, and I think there is, you know, there is concern about what that will look like in the future. As Mia rightly says, you know, it's a sausage machine. If you're going to, in 10, 20 years' time, if you want the right recruits coming out of universities and schools with the right skill sets, then you know, the discussion needs to start today. I'm not sure that discussion has really started. And that's notwithstanding the desire of businesses to be involved in the STEM discussions. You know, they want to be able to have the right people to hand, but I don't think it's really happened just yet. What I'm noticing from the Cambridge Network perspective is that the companies within Cambridge are spending an awful lot of money on developing their own staff at the moment. There really has been a great and encouraging upturn in learning development at the staff level, and I think that is in part a reaction to some concerns about future supply of skills and resources. Is there any view from the, the businesses you talk to that there's a concern that Britain is considered to be more inward looking and perhaps less welcome to people from a wide range of different countries or are they still finding it relatively easy to recruit from because often the recruitment must be from talented people from all over the world because it's particularly in the high-tech aspects of your network. It is and I think you know, Cambridge has the advantage of being an attractant for skills from around the world, you know, backed up by you know, the Strength University and the Business School, obviously. Um, you know, people come to Cambridge for careers. I'm not sure that could be said of any other uh, urban cities around the country. I think we do have an advantage there. Shadeep? So I think on the immigration question, um, the sense I have, the arg one of the arguments uh, in favor of Brexit, or the arguments that were given by those who were in favor of Brexit, was that you would have more control over uh, immigration. Uh, in particular, you would have control over people coming from the EU. Yeah. Um, but um, I wonder in a post-Brexit world when you're signing, you know, uh, presumably signing these new trade agreements with other parts of the world, India, China, you know, the US and so on, whether you will be able to uh, control immigration quite the same way. Let's take the case of, of India. So if the UK is going to sign a an agreement of some sort with India. First of all, it's going to take ages, but let's say you know they enter into this negotiation. India is going to want um, uh, you know the ability to send its people here, and that was a sticking point at least under the Theresa May regime. That was her first foreign visit as Prime Minister was to India, and she immediately ran into this question because, of course, to, under her uh, premiership. Um, students were included in the immigration numbers. And one of the things that uh, the Indian middle class wants is very much to send their kids to study here in, in Britain. And that's one of the big attractors that Britain has of, uh, you know, a kind of investment, uh, inward, uh, you know, trade in a sense. And then potentially many of those people could be entrepreneurs in the way that Silicon Valley had Indians and Chinese drive a lot of its uh, entrepreneurial activity. But uh, that was a sticking point. And now, of course, the current government seems to have relaxed some of that, 
and it's a little easier for students coming from places like India and China to work and find jobs here. But then you're going to have that issue, and immigration is going to raise its, you know, uh, the issue is going to come up again. So you may have a bit more control over European immigrants, but then if you're opening up to the rest of the world and you want to be truly global, the issue of immigration will come up again. And then the question is one of human capital as well. If you're getting you know, generally speaking, Europeans may have higher human capital than from developing countries. And so here you had access to, you know, highly educated people from the EU. You're going to have to uh, substitute those people from other parts of the world. So it's not going to go away, that question. I don't see how mm. it could go away. It's a good point. No, it's, it's a very important point, and particularly because one of our successful sectors in the UK are our universities. And if we're going to educate people from around the world, they still have to come here despite developments in blended learning and online learning, they still have to come here. Uh, and so that's a very important point. When we look at lots of the uh, immigration statistics, mm. the two main reasons that people come to the UK from all over the world are A, to work, and B, to study. And those numbers have often been very, very similar. Uh, and and of, co of course, part of that is also being able to stay here. So, yeah. I mean, what the US has done yeah. so well, and if you look at the success of Silicon Valley, yeah. Uh, with Indian engineers yeah, and mm -hmm. um, Chinese engineers as they're allowed to stay. Yeah. It's, a, it's an important point that they're allowed to stay, but they don't necessarily stay for a, a long period of time. They recirculate. Mm -hmm. so there was a concern that often you get this strain of capital from India to the United States, but they were studying there, then developing their skills in businesses in, in, in Silicon Valley, and then going back to, to India. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking at Jaideep to say whether I, that, that's yeah. a, 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 a simplistic that, view. Absolutely. So this notion of brain drain became yeah, yeah. brain circulation, circulation as yeah. you said. And I've seen that in my own lifetime is that, you know, that process, once India actually opened up its economy, it became possible for uh, Indians who'd left the country and gone primarily uh, to the states uh, to then do things again in India and actually move back and forth. Um, and another very interesting thing that happened was uh, Indian engineers who went to the states then made their way up the ranks in the big tech companies, you know, and so forth. And then often when those tech companies were looking for more engineers like them, they said instead of waiting for them to come to the states, why don't we just go to India and set up R&D centers and so on. And then they had some of those Indian engineers who were in their company go and run those R&D centers. And then there were spillovers there. So it, it is a virtuous, it is a virtuous circle. And for Britain, there was a time um, when Britain was trying to sort of, in a sense, emulate that model. Uh, there was a sense that, at least as far as India was concerned, Britain had that well, had been the route for top Indian, you know, bright Indians to come and study at a place like Cambridge. But then that had been supplanted by any number of American universities, and not just American universities, but also Australian universities or German or French universities. There was competition, and the idea was that. British universities could now, you know, attempt to attract more of these talented individuals from around the world, bring them to places like Cambridge. They would then set up businesses that would be the drivers of growth. And, and many parts of Britain have done quite well at that. I mean, certainly London and Cambridge have, and this triangle has been successful. So that question of how you are global in a post-Brexit world will, will still hinge on this question of how you're able to attract the best people and then create an environment for them to flourish in. That, that, that's a very important point about attracting people, but an, an another sort of related factor is the ability to attract business, foreign direct investment. I mean, w w are businesses going to want to come or remain in the UK, particularly for outside the single European market, or are we going to see some capital flight as well? Mia. 
I think um, sometimes there's been a willful misunderstanding of the place of Britain in the global economy um, with the Brexit debate. And I think um, many, many firms have used Britain as a platform for their um, OEMs to, to base themselves both as um, a platform to get into Europe, but also more broadly to coordinate their global supply chains around the world. And if that becomes more complicated, if that becomes more expensive, if that starts not making kind of financial sense, then I think um, with all the good political world uh, uh, will in the world, you will see some flight. You might see some attraction as well. The, the, you know, some firms might specialize in the UK market and um, whatever uh, bilateral trade agreements we see, I don't think we live in a bilateral world anymore. And so I think, you know, on the whole, it's going to be very problematic. John? I think that's a very good point. And I think it, 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 we started off by talking about the difference between you know, where we end up in terms of trade restrictions. And so our, our attractiveness for physical manufacturing will very much be dependent upon that. I think the interesting thing, perhaps is narrowing down to a Cambridge perspective, is you know, Cambridge has been a very important centre for FDI, for people wanting to get close to the university, wanting to get close to the businesses here. You know, we've seen the likes of Amazon, Microsoft, Apple along the station road. So I think you know, things which are less um, relative or less dependent on trade barriers, we might still see that attractant here in the UK for people wanting to come and exercise and utilise some of the IP here. Yeah, I think the FDI one is a big one. Um, my sense is, again, taking, say, the perspective of, an, of a multinational Indian company or an Indian company that has global ambitions, Britain was very attractive. The same uh, for, say, Chinese companies. Very attractive place to set up uh, a base uh, in order to access not only the UK market, which is still a very significant market, but also then to get access to the European market, which is an even more significant market. So Britain, I think, benefited greatly from that. Um, uh, and in a post-Brexit world, if you don't have access uh, to the single market, if you don't have a customs union, then as Mia was saying, there's frictions uh, that result. And then those, those companies from the emerging world or from anywhere who have those global ambitions are going to have to now make a hard choice. They're going to have to say, do we want to have two offices, one in Britain for the UK, because which is still a significant market, and one in, I don't know, say Ireland or the Netherlands or somewhere, uh, which has some of the similar kind of dynamism of the British economy, but still has access to the single market. Uh, you know, do we choose between the two or do we have to have two offices now? Um, and, and they may well decide not to have one in, in Britain. They might just decide to go to that. And I think already the, the Dutch and the the, the Irish have benefited, and the French are positioning themselves to be there. And you know, so that's just in you know, things like manufacturing, but what about services, what about financial services sector, and so on. So yeah, I think the FDI question is, uh, is, a, is a big one. Um, uh, yeah, and, and there are these questions. John? I also question, yeah, let's be contentious slightly here, um, the UK has not had to market itself on a global stage as, as an FDI destination. And I don't know to what extent, if I was a company based in, in Shanghai, based in Mumbai, if I was looking at where I'm going to place my next business, I'm not sure to what degree we're fit enough or lean enough to have that pull to make people come to the UK 
kind of post-Brexit. Particularly, well, particularly if you want easy access to the European Union, you're not going to come here, I don't think, no. the UK. Well, you're, it's going to be towards the bottom of your rankings. Yep. If I was American, if I was an American firm looking right now at Europe uh, in a company that was mostly English speaking, I would base myself in Dublin. Yeah. It would make sense to be there, to have access to the single market, and I'd avoid the UK altogether, really. And I think, you know, we're, we're fooling ourselves in a way if, if, if we think that's not um, behind a lot of decisions. I think your point earlier, um, Jadeep, about having a UK office and a European-based office is right, that often we might not see the complete dissolution of, of these firms, but that we'll have a much smaller number of people working within the UK and kind of uh, the, the financial flows coming from that firm will be a lot less. The, the, the US firms going to the Republic of Ireland is an interesting one because, as you say, of course, Ireland is in the single European market. It's English-speaking workforce, a highly educated workforce, but also low corporation tax. Uh, right. and, and, and there are arguments that it's attracting lots of economic ac activity to Ireland, but perhaps many Irish people are not seeing those those benefits. But uh, so Well, that's, that's probably uh, true as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Uh, just going back, Mia, particularly to a, an issue you addressed earlier, was uh, and in particularly being you're a, a, an expert in these areas of, of, of regional economics and um, uh, the regional impact of Brexit, because there there are different arguments here and different 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 studies. But one common refrain is that the the areas that are going to suffer most f from economically from Brexit are often those who supported Brexit. I mean, it's going to be the um, the northeast, the West Midlands, Northern Ireland, the Northwest, because they have export sectors that, that trade a lot with with the European Union, whereas many of the businesses in London and the Southeast are global, and perhaps their impacts will be less less pronounced to Brexit because they're trading on global markets. I mean, what's your view about the sort of the regional dimensions of the sort of Brexit? Um, Story. Yeah, I think it's complicated, and I think, think it's quite a sectoral story as well, as you already alluded to. Um, you know, a lot of the service sectors are based in London and the South East, and um, uh, manufacturing tends to be more in the Midlands and in the North and Northern Ireland. I think also, so, so there are the dynamics around that and what happens, and that's a complicated story. We don't know where the pound will be and the value of the pound and what will happen to exports and imports and how that affects regional economies. The whole migration question, which we talked about before, um, when we talk about skilled versus unskilled migration, of course, that also has a regional component, and these regions you mentioned um, in the north of the country tend to um, have um, more semi-skilled and unskilled labor needs than, than the southeast. But also on top of that, um, there's the public sector and the ways in which what happens to our tax base and our welfare system and our public spending affects the regions will also have a very really fundamental impact on, on um, regions that need public support the most, which often are the same regions that you mention. Um, so it's also a question of how much borrowing and debt that um, the new UK government is willing to take on, and to what extent um, are we spending it uh, in a way to rebalance the economy. We haven't even talked about that, but of course that's been a long-standing aim um, 
of, of successive governments. So all those things will have a regional implication and kind of affect different areas of the country very differently. I mean, the only thing I wanted to say, and it's more a question actually for those who think more about the politics than the economics of this, is whether in fact the effect of Brexit is going to be a political realignment. We've already seen some of that which forces the powers that be to actually invest in the regions that were left behind. Uh, now, especially if a lot of the MPs in the government are from those regions, they'll have you know, a commitment to their constituents to, to see some of that through. And I mean, if we go into why people voted for Brexit, it's quite possible that some of that vote was actually a signal to Whitehall and to Westminster to think more about those left behind regions. So maybe that's what we might see, uh, you know, in terms of a regional rebalancing, because that will be needed. That's, that's an important issue. Perhaps we can explore what the what the policy options may be, or what, what policy, how policy may evolve now. Because uh, before the election, there was there was often. Well, for many years, there's been a view from those perhaps on, on the right of the political spectrum that the EU constrains British policymaking and we need more deregulation, we need free markets to be more powerful. Uh, and we thought of Thatcherism part two. Um, and on the, on the left, there was critics of the European Union saying it's constraining what we do in terms of intervention and we want Keynesianism in one country. Uh, and so we had that division. Now, the initial view was with a very strong uh, Conservative government being elected that perhaps we were going to pursue the, uh, the more free market Thatcherite agenda. But the rhetoric is different now. The rhetoric is, is about regional policy. The rhetoric is about industrial policy. It's about, about levelling up, about regional imbalances, and even about infrastructure and reversing the beaching cuts. So um, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, are, are, is this reality or is it rhetoric? Are we going to see an interventionist government here? Mia? <laughs> I'll believe it when I <laughs> see it. <Yeah. laughs> I really think um, that um, the media coverage of it has been very unbalanced and the um, HS2 has gotten an enormous amount of um, media interest. That's not really going to help northern economies for a long, long time, if ever. You know, it may well, uh, like other um, high-speed rails, pull all economic activity into London, uh, into the kind of center, central city. So, you know, it's not clear that um, the, the kind of political gambit of saying, we are, we are investing in these the regions really will pay off in, in a way that really starts to rebalance the kind of divisions between North and South in our country. Um, so I, 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 I would say it's absolutely rhetoric at this point. You know, I'd love to see real policies on, you know, serious industrial policies that um, I think it is a sector by sector kind of case about what happens where. So the, the region and the sector kind of become very kind of intertwined. John. I, I guess my concern is that the, we, the doomsday forecast we've had for the past half hour looking at perhaps you know, a reduction in the economy which would in turn, unless there's going to be a lot of debt taken on. I, th I, think, I think the argument was the growth is going to be slower than it otherwise would have been. Yes. Think, so, uh, yeah, yeah. And if that has a restriction on the public funds available, then you know, the balancing the economy becomes a much more difficult art. And if one were a business, you would tend to invest in the areas that produce the highest return, the highest GVA for the money you have, which tends to be the South. So 
I'm glad I'm not a politician because you have an impossible balance there. Do you keep investing in the South and the Southeast at the expense of those that allowed the election to get through and Brexit to happen? Or do you try and rebalance the economy? I'm mm. not sure what the answer is. I'm not sure there is an answer with limited funds. Well, I was just struck by the fact that somebody made the argument that, you know, HS2, as you said, is a big investment, but it only reinforces, in a sense, some of the imbalances there are. What you really need are much cheaper investments in lateral transport links, uh, short distance transport links between towns in the Absolutely. north. Absolutely. Uh, that sort of uh, infrastructure investment. Another thing that keeps coming up, I think we discussed it, was, uh, was skills and continue, you know, uh, uh, Continuous, continuous learning, um, because you know the nature. So when we ask the question of you know will it, you ask the question of will it, um, when 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 it's harder to get labor, will you then invest in your workforce? Of course, that's not a foregone conclusion because they could just invest in robots if you're manufacturing, or you know AI if you're in services. Um, so I think again some steering uh, uh, from the state. Uh, some kind of intervention, not just around infrastructure, but that kind of hard infrastructure, but also soft infrastructure. If you look at you know what makes the South thrive, I think to a great extent, it is the soft infrastructure of the universities. The North has those, but perhaps those regions are not as well linked as they are in this triangle of uh, Oxford, Cambridge, London. So those kinds of things, that kind of industrial policy, which may not actually cost as much as the big HS2s of the world, but maybe far more effective in rejuvenating um, those economies and, and helping them thrive in a sense, you know, just helping them thrive. We have a very poor history in this country of a coherent long-term industrial policy and particularly applied at the regional level. Uh, and regional imbalances have been increasing at least rapidly for a long period of time, at least from the early 1980s. So there's going to be a, it's going to need a major push, Absolutely. I think, to reverse these things. And, and as Mia was saying, if we get slower growth, we get wages being lower than they otherwise would have been, profits being lower than it otherwise would have been, and government revenue through taxes being lower than it otherwise mm. would have been. So And public spending lower yeah. than it would yeah. have been. So we've just also had a call um, for all the departments to have a 5% cut in spending recently. And of course, um, public spending has been one way that the government has tried to, in the past, kind of rebalance kind of industrial weakness is, is yeah. through kind of public sector spending. L let me ask you, I'm conscious of the time and people have got to go to lectures and so on and, and John's got his network to support. Um, uh, thinking longer term in 20 years time, uh, what, 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 what will Britain look like, what will the UK look like in 20 years time? Are you optimistic or pessimistic? Um, and I, I know this is again a lot of speculation because we, we don't exactly know what Brexit is. It's becoming a little bit clearer, but we don't exactly know how Brexit is going to play out. We don't ex know exactly what policy response is going to be implemented. Yeah. But broadly speaking. So, I mean, as someone who grew up in India, spent you know, 21 years there and then went to the West, went to the US, lived in the Netherlands and has lived now in, in the UK 20 years. Uh, there are so many advantages that, and, and strengths that the UK economy has. Uh, Brexit just seems to be, a sh you know, shooting yourself in the foot from my perspective. But there still is a very uh, significant base. Uh, and, you know, if you compare Britain to a vast part of the, of the world, uh, including those countries which are registering 5% uh, growth and up, it has m many strengths. A human capital would be right up there. The ability, a very vibrant uh, entrepreneurial, uh, you know, ecosystem. 
uh, and uh, leading in many technical sectors, sectors of the future, things like AI and digital and so on. People from around the world and even the EU like to set up their startups in, in London and, and this part of, of the UK and possibly in some other parts of the UK as well. And that's going to continue. If anything, that part of the economy is going to become even more important. And so, you know, the UK is a leader in those. It's, it's still very easy to set up a business here. We were just talking to the minister from Bangladesh, how much harder it is to simply set up a business, how hard it is to deal with the tax authorities in many countries, how hard it is to dissolve your business if it, you go bankrupt, things like that. The UK has a lot of that in its ecosystem. And all those parts of the economy lend themselves to being global. So I think, you know, that's the, that's the cause for optimism, is that that part of the economy will work and that part of the economy is not so affected, I think, by, by Brexit, even a hard Brexit. So those parts will have to thrive and will thrive, I think, in, in Britain in a post-Brexit world. That's my view. So Jaideep is optimistic. John? I'm optimistic too. I think in 20 years' time, I think we will have dusted off the battle scars and I think there is a great pride in British industry and British business and I think they'll yeah they'll dust themselves off they'll you know. I, one thing I've reflected on a lot in the last couple of years is you know business gets on with it you know a lot of the debate a lot of nervousness has been at the political level actually if you talk to businesses you know, they're used to getting up in the morning reading something in the paper which has a material impact on their business's future so they're used to actually you know, changing their strategy reformulating, regrouping, and setting forth on a new strategic path. And I think yeah, they see Brexit as just another one of those little they, dinks in the road. They would prefer certainty, though. They would, but yeah. Yeah, the only thing certain is uncertainty. So I think people are more used to it than they give credit for. So I, I think they'll re-establish themselves. I think there'll be some niche UK industries which will set up. I think some may be impacted upon, depending on what the tariffs look like. But I think overall, I'm, I, I, they're on the side of optimism. So t two optimistic views. Mia, is it going to make it a hat trick? No, I'm afraid I can't. <laughs> I can't do that. So sorry to end on a, on a uh, down note, but I am not so optimistic. I think something we didn't even spend much time discussing, kind of uh, regulatory divergence um, with, with the EU, I find very troubling. And I think what I fear is that we overstate our importance in the global economy. And I think this both empowers other countries, such as the US, who, who are much more powerful, um, but also corporations who um, will find it that much easier to um, avoid kind of paying their burden of tax and um, being a good corporate citizen within the UK, um, I suppose my biggest fear is that we do end up being some version that might be quite a prosperous version, but where we end up being the 51st state of the USA. Well, I, I will give you my final view just to, just to complete them. I, I, I'm a short-term pessimist and a long-term optimist. I'm a short-term pessimist because I think we will have slower economic growth than we otherwise would have done within the EU. So that would mean lower wages than they otherwise would mean lower profits and lower government revenue. Um, but I'm an optimist because I think that in, in, in perhaps 20 or 25 years' time, they'll be pushed to rejoin the EU, a combination of regret because of economic performance and demographics because of 
big difference between those who are pro and anti the EU in terms of their ages, and we'll, we'll push to return to join the EU in 20 or 25 years' time. And we might be a humbler nation, and there may be political differences as well. Scotland may there be an independent country, and there is also a possibility that Ireland may be united. And so we may go back as a smaller economy, but also a more humbler economy, and that may benefit us in terms of long-term economic growth. But as we say, we're all speculating, and it's nice to have contrasting views here today on the optimism, because uh, remember, disagreement is our fuel within a university, and that through, through disagreement we make progress, hopefully. Um, but thank you. Again, we've got m m many of these areas we need to discuss again, and I'm sure future podcasts on this issue will come back again, because hopefully there will be more certainty at the end of the year on Brexit. It would be great if you could all come back again. So it's a great pleasure to thank my guests today, John Gord, Dr. Mia Gray, and Professor Jaideep Prabhu. Thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And I hope you can join us next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.